0: We're in the 25th chapter of the book of Exodus and uh, kind of uh, making our way through this. Let me um, just by briefly, uh, a brief review, just to, just to catch us up here with a couple of things that are, are important. Um, the basic premise on which we, I interpret the Old Testament is that you have the principles of the Christian life in the New Testament. And you have the pictures of the Christian life, of those principles in the Old Testament, right? So you got principle in the new, picture in the old. And if you find, if you can find, if uh, come across a principle in the New Testament, and there are many principles, Christian principles. You can look back in the Old Testament and find those principles illustrated in some event or some person, or some law, some ceremony. It's called typology. Now, I uh, confessed last Sunday night that I am prone to uh, spend a lot of time in the Old Testament in typology. It's the way I interpret the Old Testament. And if it isn't right, well, you can take it up with somebody else later on, but that's the way I'm going to do it. And when I've when I've discovered this way of interpreting the Old Testament, it has come alive for me. And so what you have in the Old Testament is this desire of God to make clear to his people, to to express his great thought of redemption uh, in a topical in a in a typical way or in a symbolic uh, way. Easy for you to say. Hard for me. And so if you lived in the Old Testament and you were experiencing these things, you might not know that they were picturing um, some event that was yet to come. You, You might know that, but you might not. But there is no excuse now living in the New Testament age not to be able to look back on the Old Testament and see that this Old Testament event was God's way of illustrating an event yet to come. Now, if Jesus is the central figure of the Bible, and if the Scripture gives primacy to redemption, the redemptive work of Jesus, then it makes sense that all of these events that occur, even in the Old Testament, are events that focus on the redemptive work of Jesus. Now, as we look back on it from the New Testament, we can see how it happened in, the, you know, in that period of time of when Jesus was alive on earth. But when you read the Old Testament, you see these events looking forward to it. That's how the old people in the Old Testament got saved, in my humble and accurate opinion, as they exercised faith in the redemptive work of Jesus symbolized in these events an event yet to come. Now, we have come in our study to the most significant part of the Old Testament, um, and that is the study of the the tabernacle. And this tabernacle was this temporary dwelling place of God in the wilderness. But there is more to the tabernacle than just a place where people met, you know, uh, went so that they could meet God. Um, It wasn't a sit-down place where they went to church, as a matter of fact, in in the first place. But here was this tent that they moved around, and the tabernacle had three meanings. All this review, you got it last week, that's why you're not taking notes, I can tell. Not a single person in here taking notes. Why did I hand these out (laughs) in the first place? Why did I go through all this trouble? Okay. Uh, There are three meanings of the tabernacle. One is that it symbolized the dwelling place of God. Somewhere God dwells who can ascend into the holy hill, who can come into the place where God is. There is somewhere beyond this life where God dwells. We call it heaven, but um, it is a literal place, not a state of mind, and God dwells there somewhere in the heavens. The tabernacle secondly symbolized or or was uh, typified Jesus Christ Himself, so that all of the um, things that are in the tabernacle, the the furniture, everything there has some kind of a relationship to the life and to the person and the work of Jesus. Now Jesus was the temporary dwelling place of God. For 33 years He lived. He embodied Him. Uh, In Him dwelled all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus Christ was this temporary place, dwelling place of God as the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Third, The tabernacle was the place where God and man met. And they came to the tent of meeting. They called it the tent of meeting. And they came to the door of that tent of meeting. And there God communed and fellowshiped face to face with Moses. It was the place where God and man met. Now the way that a man comes to know God, how, how a man comes to God is through Jesus Christ and he's the one mediator and he's the one who stands there, who, 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 who split history in two and man comes to God through Jesus Christ. That's the whole idea of the tabernacle. But the significance of these last chapters of the book of Exodus, listen to me carefully, the significance of the last books of Exodus is, is this, that God has chosen to give us a picture and it's easier to understand a picture than an abstract idea or doctrine. I've always um, thought that um, the best way to preach is to preach with a lot of illustrations. You've noticed that before stories. One guy told me one time. He said, "Man, I can, make, I can get a thing out of that sermon, but I love those stories." You know. <laughs> so, I, I think that's the way Jesus taught. The way Jesus preached is these marvelous stories, because it's so much easier to understand a picture than it is. To an abstract doctrine or idea. Now, what these last chapters of the book of Exodus do for us is this it gives us a picture of how a person is saved. Believe it or not, how a person is saved. So I come to this New Testament principle of salvation. And I discover the, the, the truth, the principle, the message, the, the, the doctrine, and then I go back to that Old Testament picture of that and say, I understand it. This is, this is easy to understand. I know how a person comes to know God. Now, the, the tabernacle um, in, in the, in the uh, 25th chapter of the book of Exodus, he begins to describe the tabernacle and the interesting thing about it, and I'm not going to read all of this, but, but, but you, you can do it because it just gives details of how it's done. But the interesting thing about this, now watch this, is, is this, that he starts at the center part of the tabernacle and he moves to the external part of the tabernacle in its description. The tabernacle was divided into three sections, there were two chambers, and then there was this holy, of holy holiest, uh, holiest place, the Holy of Holies. And he begins in the Holy of Holies, and he moves to the outer chamber in his description of it. He begins at the Ark of the Covenant, and he moves to the, to the door of the tabernacle. He moves from the interior to the exterior. And there is a marvelous picture here of, of how God has moved in history. That's how it happens, you see, is that since man couldn't go from earth to heaven, God came from heaven to earth. And since man could not enter into the holiest place where God was, God in Christ left the holiest place and came to where man is. It's called the incarnation. And so there is this holiest place where God dwells. And here is man here, and there's this great distance in separation. And God, in His love and mercy, to to encounter man in the redeeming activity, in this timeline, He left the glorious place, the holiest place, came all the way down through the, the earth to man. So you start from the interior, and you move to the exterior. Now, I want you to follow with me in chapter um, 25, verses 1 and 2. That's what it says. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. Um, You just can't get away from taking up an offering, can you? I mean, it's happened out there in the wilderness and in in the tabernacle, and it happens in First Baptist Church. You just can't get away from that. He said, tell the people, take up a contribution for me. From every man, look at this, whose heart moves him. You shall raise my contribution. And this is the contribution which you are to raise from them. Gold and silver and bronze. And he began to name the materials that were to go in to the tabernacle. As their heart was moved... And so Moses um, um, went to the people and uh, they um, had a Together We Build campaign, brought in a man, got pledge cards and all that. And that wasn't exactly how it went. Moses said, now, here's the proposition. If you want God among you, those of you who desire that God dwells among you, then you bring this contribution. And he began to name it. And the people begin to bring the contribution. And they begin to hoard up this, these materials, this wealth, this stuff they had brought out of, out of Egypt. And so great was the contribution that in the 35th and 36th chapters of the book of Exodus, Moses had to put up his hands and say, It's time to stop. We got all we can use. Amazing. No more, huh? No more having to beg for it. Now they had to stop it, which reminds me. I just happened to think about this that the other night I was watching uh, Billy Graham from from uh, Moscow. He's preaching over there uh, back back in the fall, but it's now on television. It was on television. And Billy Graham preached this sermon with an interpreter and it was just a simple thing. And then he said, now it's time for us, we're going to have an invitation. And all of those who want to come to Christ come down. It was this huge stadium. Did you all see it on television? There was this blank space out there. And no sooner had he gotten it out of his mouth, he said, don't run, don't run. And a camera spanned over there and people were just running from the stadium, packing that place to come to Christ. Their heart was moved. Their heart was moved. Now, for those who desire God among us, he said, those whose heart is moved bring an offering. And they brought an offering. And he had to put up his hands and say, it's time to stop. We got more than we can handle. Now, I want to read after the offering and the, the sacrifices. I want you to turn with me and let's look quickly at chapter 25 Verse 10. And they shall construct an ark of achaica wood, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide, one and a half cubits high. And you shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and out you shall overlay it and you shall make a gold molding around it and begin to describe the ark. Now y'all know what, a, what the ark was. Um, the ark was a chest, really. And it was a wooden chest, um, slightly over four feet in length. It was about two and a half feet uh, wide and about two and a half feet deep. A cubit is a little bit more than 18 inches. And the wood of which it was made was overlaid with gold, both on the inside and on the outside, so that nothing was visible to the eye except gold. And this ark was the uh, symbolical dwelling place of God, and it had on the top of it really was the lid, it's called the mercy seat. And on this lid, this mercy seat that had a raised lip around it, that was the symbolical place of where God dwelt in His Shekinah glory. So in this holiest room of the tabernacle was this holiest piece of furniture, this chest called the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark was the symbol of the presence of God among His people and that His covenant blessing was resting upon them. It was the most sacred and the most glorious instrument in the sanctuary. Now, we need to consider the ark in seven connections. We won't get them all tonight, but we're going to get some of them. Now, watch this carefully. As this unfolds, it's absolutely exciting. Number one, it typified the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. It typified the person of the Lord Jesus. Now, where have you heard the word ark before? Where have you heard that? Whose ark? Blank, huh? Noah's ark. There is another place where, there, where, the ark, where it was called an ark. That was whose ark? Moses' ark. You know what that was, don't you? It was that little wicker, that little basket that was made for Moses as a baby to be spared from, from Pharaoh, the Egyptians. It was called an ark. It was just a little floating basket that Moses, baby Moses, was placed in. So that the ark was this, this um, vessel of deliverance, this vessel of redemption, this vessel of salvation and in this holy place was this uh, chest with specific dimensions and this ark of the, uh, of the covenant, this ark in the holiest place symbolized and typified the person of the Lord Jesus. Now it was made of two things. It was made of wood and it was made of gold. And it symbolized the nature of Jesus Christ, the human nature of Jesus, and the divine nature of Jesus. And it was it was an instrument, a vessel, that had two components. It had it was the chest and it had a lid on it. And these, and the and the lid was, as I said, was called the mercy seat. One represents who he is, and the other represents what he does. One represents his person, and the other represents his work. So that the mercy seat represented what he did, and the ark itself represented who he is. John says in John's Gospel, verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who He is and what He does. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I'm determined to know only one thing among you, Jesus Christ and Him crucified, who He is and what He does. And the revelation says, I saw between the throne a lamb standing as it had been slain. So that there is in this wonderful Lord, this nature combined, these two natures combined, human and divine. And these two aspects of his life, what he is, Lamb of God, and what he's done, slain before the foundation of the world. And this was the order of the tabernacle's furniture. First, the ark, then the mercy seat. Second, notice its materials. It's made out of achaica wood. Now, if you um, look through a biblical encyclopedia or whatever, achaica wood is, is wood that comes from a shittim tree. That doesn't mean a thing to anybody except the fact that a shittim tree was believed to be a uh, wood that was imperishable and it was a tree that was found out in the desert. It, it was really, you know, uh, in, a, in, a, in the desert there were bushes and this shittim tree was the tallest kind of bush. It was, it was a tree out in the middle of the desert. So this ark was made out of this tree that grew out in the desert. Now I want you to take your Bibles and look quickly, quickly with me to Isaiah 53. You guys, hot? Is it hot out there? I am literally I'm talking about a sauna bath. If that wasn't uh, time to quit, I'd be getting some air going in here. This is hot. You're loving it, aren't you? Seeing me sweat up here. Isaiah 53 Look at what he says in verse 2 For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground Who's he talking about there? He's talking about Jesus. He grew up like a tender shoot um in dry ground. He was like a tree in the desert. He could thrive in very dry soil. This, this, this shitem tree could thrive in very dry soil, had long, sharp thorns. And derived from this tree, I read, was a gum that was used for medicine they would take from this shaitan tree a gum used for medicine and it was secured by piercing the tree at nightfall at night so they go out in the desert and they would pierce this tree in, in the night and this gum would ooze out of it and they would take that gum and and it was used in medicine for healing now get this picture He's like a, the root of Jesse. He's, he's like a root that springs up out of dry ground. And men took a crown of thorns and they placed it on his head and they pierced him after the darkest night of, of man's existence when the sun went into hiding and out of his side flowed blood and water mixed, and God took that blood and applied it to our lives and by His stripes we are healed. What a magnificent picture. Notice the third thing about the ark. It's contents. It's contents. If you'll read sometime Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4, it was... Um, It contained a jar-holding manna, and it contained Aaron's rod that budded, and it contained the tablets of the covenant, and it had this rod of Aaron that budded. You know the story there? Let me give you that story. It harkens back to the 16th chapter of the book of Numbers. And there was this conflict that developed, a revolt uh, against Moses and Aaron led by a man named Korah. And Korah was the grandson of Levi. And the tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe, the priestly line. And this man uh, was revolting against the authority that was given by God to Moses and to Aaron. And the revolt was visited by judgment. It was uh, uh, broken, crushed. And there was this vindication by the judgment of God from on high and was followed by this, this command of God. He told Moses to take 12 rods, one from each of the tribes, and write their name on it, and he was to write on the, on the rod that was for the tribe of Levi. He was to write Aaron's name on that rod. And you check it in the 17th chapter of the book of Numbers. He, left, he said, take these rods and place them before the Ark of the Covenant. And in the morning, the rod that lives, the rod that is budded, That will be the rod of the tribe that is to perform the priestly function. Now now watch carefully what's happening here. He said we'll determine which tribe, out of which tribe, will come those who have the authority to, to perform the function of ministry as a priest and who have the authority of God upon their life. The next morning, guess whose rod budded? Aaron's rod budded. And what he's saying is this, that the real test of the person who has authority, the authority to, to represent God to man and man to God, is the, is the, is the person who... By divine miracle has the evidence of life out of death about him. You know, watch carefully. This dead rod lived. So that the fact that a dead rod lived meant that that person had authority to minister as a priest. Now, I want you to take your New Testament and I want you to turn to the book of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, now let's read verses 1 through 4, it says this, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning His Son, who was born a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I don't know what you get out of that. This is what I get out of it. That when God brought Jesus out of death to life, He vindicated Him as the one who has the supreme authority, as the priest that goes to us from God and to God from us. The one priest, the one mediator. And the way He did that was that He made death live. He made the dead to live. Aaron's rod, And the third thing that was in the ark were the two tablets of stones on which was written the Ten Commandments. Now, there are two different tablets of stones. The first one were dashed to pieces, you know, when Moses uh, lost his temper. And the second went into the ark. Now, I want you to turn. We'll look one other place, and then we're out here. Turn to the tenth chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. Now, let's read verses one and two. Deuteronomy, verses one and two. At that time the Lord said to me, "Cut out for yourselves two tablets of stone like the former ones, and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood for yourself. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood and cut out two tablets of stone like the former ones. Went up on the mountain with the two tablets in my hand, put those. Now, you tell me, you talk to me, what is missing in this? This ark is made out of acacia wood. What is missing here? Huh? The gold. Well, you guys are really sharp. Y'all got that over here? He just didn't say it out loud. The gold is missing here. Now if the wood is a symbol of his human nature, and the gold is the symbol of his divine nature, what he's saying in Deuteronomy 10 is, is that the human man had to keep the law of God. And he kept the law of God. He was without sin... He kept the law of God. But because he kept the law of God as a perfect man, and he died that vicarious death, and God raised him from the dead, as both human and divine, he meets every need of man. Made under the law, keeping the law, the Savior of man. Now, this is the picture is that man in any period of time, in any age, comes to know God through the authority that is given him through Jesus Christ? This way it says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become the sons of God. And he becomes a son of God, a child of God on the authority that is vested in Jesus when we put our faith and trust in him. This divine human. Savior. you ever done that? Have you placed your faith in Christ? Crucified? Buried and raised? Why don't you do that tonight? What a picture of how to be saved is this story, this account. Would you bow with me? Our Father, we pray tonight that we can get a mental image of what Jesus is and what Jesus does and did, and that there would be faith to believe, trust, commitment to receive. I pray that those of us tonight who need to make decisions of any kind would come with courage to that Christ revealed in Scripture. For I pray in His name. Now, here are the invitations. Look here. An invitation for you to come to know Jesus Christ in a personal way, to trust Him, place your faith in Him, human, divine, risen Christ. Or maybe you need to come and join the church. Put your your fellowship here with us to serve God together or recommitment of your life to Jesus Christ, whatever God would lead you to do, we invite you to do it right now while we stand to sing. Come.